Well, let's get started. I'm so excited to have David Kessler on, aren't you, Hyde? I am too. He's one of our favorite people and he touches thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives actually all over the world. Yeah, and then as many of our speakers and probably most of them and participants, David lost a child, which um, he's written many things, but uh, his last book is Finding Meaning and was inspired by the loss of his son. And he is also the founder of grief.com. David, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Uh, thank Hi. you so much. I love being here with both of you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So you're going to be talking about finding meaning after loss, right? I am in our world today. All right. We'll take it away. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone who's joining us. Uh, virtually. I'm so honored that they put this together and uh, just brought together so many incredible speakers. It's really amazing. I want to just for those of you who may not know my work, I want to just share a little bit about my background. And uh, then we'll get into just a little bit of the, the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, like many people, we don't choose this world, it chooses us. I had a mother who was dying in a hospital uh, when I was 13 years old and a horrible shooting happened. One of the first mass shootings in the US went on for 13 hours, racially motivated. Uh, and then we weren't able to be with my mother. So dying alone, racial tensions, sounds a little bit still like today. I went on to try to search for healing. And back then there just wasn't anyone to sort of help with those kinds of losses. And it was so much trauma and grief. And I always talk about, you know, all grief does not have trauma, but all trauma has grief. And I was so fortunate to learn about end of life care and uh, work with amazing people like my mentor, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, and write two books with her. And it was just such an honor to learn at um, a master's feet like hers. And uh, I also wrote a book with Louise Hay. And I've just spent decades really learning from people in grief. I often uh, want to make sure I don't get too much credit because so much of what I share is recycled that people in grief have taught me over the years. I thought as I became a grief specialist for decades and worked and helped people in end of life care and dealing with the grief after the death, as well as some of the grief before the death, I thought my grief was behind me. And then five years ago, my younger son, David, unexpectedly died at 21 years old and Brutal, brutal then, brutal now. As a grief specialist, I wanted to write a note to every parent I had counseled saying, I'm so sorry, I didn't know how bad the pain was. And I think it's such an important lesson to know that we can never know another's pain. We can only know our own. So I had to do what I had asked others to do all those years to go to grief counseling and go to a grief group. And I took my contacts out and put my glasses on and a baseball cap and 
I sat in a grief group. I literally sat in a compassionate friends group with a table with my books five feet away. And I couldn't be as much as I wanted to be the grief expert. I had to be the father who had to bury a child. And yet I was also aware of that grief process. And I thought about that, that the, the grief that I was going through and I had moments I'd go, yep, this is denial. I can't believe it happened. And I would also go, yep, I'm angry. Yeah, here's bargaining, the what ifs. And I would see myself going through different stages. And I always want to remind you as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross would, they're not linear. They're a very organic experience. There's no right way to do grief clearly or no one model for grief. So we all do it so individually. It's an organic process. And one of the things besides Elizabeth and I teaching people over the years that it's not linear, the experience of grief or the stages. Also, when I began to wrestle with acceptance, I remember how people had so misinterpreted that thought of acceptance, like it's one place you get to when you're done. And we know that's not true. And as I wrestled with acceptance, I thought it's just not enough. I wanted more. I wanted to find meaning. And I had so loved Victor, Victor Frankl's work on meaning and how he dealt with it in concentration camps. And I wanted to really know how it would work for those of us who were dealing with so much pain of loss. I think about meanings all around us. If you want to know about finding meaning, you could literally start with today. You know, I, I, I think about what this is today. Gloria and Heidi have put together an amazing community of people and community brings us meaning. And they brought together their own community and open to hope that served and helped so many people. And each of the speakers today, most of them have their own community of helping. And so I find so much meaning in just being here today with those of you watching and the people you're going to hear from, brilliant people like Bonnie Carroll and Donna Schumann and uh, Sherry O'Loughlin, Brian Smith, Ken Druck, Allison Gilbert, you know, Michelle Niff Hernandez. These people have been through this themselves and are here helping Glenn, Glenn Lord, Kathy Murphy, you're going to hear from, and so many others. And in grief and in life, so many people that are on here today, we've become family. They're, I'm on their things. They come to my things. They're part of my uh, grief educator certification program. They teach for us. I teach for them. Ken Ross, who you're going to hear from later, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's son, an incredible photographer. He's going to be interviewed by Diane Gray. So many wonderful people. I find such meaning in just this moment and all of us coming together to help one another because the world needs so much of that today. So please soak in the meaning of today. I think about the world we're living in now. The past couple of years, there have been so much loss. There's been job loss, the loss of safety, of freedom, of our health, of events, 
of the normal life. Like, do you remember that world from three years ago? Where, where did that go? Milestones are gone. Rituals have disappeared in so many ways. People weren't able to have funerals. Just even the loss of transition, so many things. And you know, one of the things, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, so many people who have been through grief, you realize in such devastating loss, you have x-ray vision. You feel grief and loss in the world a little more personally. I think about what's happening in Ukraine and the pain and suffering we see on TV these days. People in grief have just an unending amount of compassion. And so I think we, we, are, we have a level of empathy that we see that suffering and we want to take action and do something. And meaning is one of the ways we can do things to help out in the world. I think of in these past few years, I think of it as micro and macro losses. In other words, the big and little losses of life. And we're the one that defines them. It's never for me to say that's a micro loss or a little loss. We, you know, look back on our own lives and define how our losses sit together. But there's been all kinds of losses that we've gone through. And I want to share a story that I think is very pertinent to this that happened in March of 2020, early in the pandemic. I was doing a walk six feet apart from a friend who came over. And when we were talking, a young woman ran up and said, oh my gosh, my wedding's been postponed and I heard you deal with grief. And she just burst into tears. And she was talking to me about her grief. And I chatted with her about her disappointment, her sadness. And then after we chatted, she thanked me, she walked away. My friend turned to me and said, I couldn't believe her going on and on about her wedding being postponed. That's going to happen in a few months. And you've had the death of a child. Her grief, that's not even grief. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand how grief works. So many times we think of grief as this pie. And if you take a piece, there's less for me. And I think about the concept of having security in grief. My grief stands alone. You know, her having grief, first of all, for her, that's a wedding she was dreaming about since she was five. She's 22 years old. It actually probably is the worst thing that's ever happened to her. And it doesn't take away from mine. You know, I, I'm secure. I, I know my son, David. I know that our grief is about our love. Other people having grief and talking about it doesn't take away a piece of the pie. You know, all there's enough room in the world for all our losses together. And one of the questions I often get asked is which grief is the worst? Which grief is the worst? And I always say, the worst grief is yours. You know, the worst grief is your grief. I, I, I think about we don't have a broken head. We have a broken heart. And when we're comparing, we've moved into our head. 
and we have this sense that like but their grief isn't as bad as mine and really sometimes what we're saying is my grief needs to be seen a little more i need a little more love for my grief you know i think about just people ask me they'll say isn't the death of a child the worst grief and i'll say for me for me and only for me i don't know anyone else but i also know you know my older son walked in and found my younger son i will never know what that did to him i can never look at him and say the loss of your brother isn't as bad as my loss you know i can't say a sibling loss is easier I, there who why would we even want to compare because you know when you win you lose and so that whole comparison thing sometimes can separate us from connection to each other and the support and love we all deserve i think of what ram das would always say we're just walking each other home and your grief is as unique as your fingerprint because no one has had your loved one no one knew them like you did even if it was your mother or father that died you had a different relationship than your siblings when i wrote finding meaning the sixth stage of grief and i and i will be forever indebted to um ken ross and the elizabeth kubler ross family and foundation for giving me permission to add a stage to her iconic stages i i think about how unique our grief is in all the world and one of the things in researching that book that happened that i just never thought i'd be doing in this lifetime is to look at how different people death of a spouse death of a sibling death of a parent death of a child how we all deal with those losses and those traumatic experiences and i did some research on buffaloes i never thought in my career as a grief specialist i'd be studying buffaloes but one of the things that's really extraordinary to me that i found is buffaloes, when they sense a storm coming, they actually run into the storm, thereby minimizing their time, they're in the discomfort. I think about most of us in this world grew up being taught to run from our grief, to keep it a mile behind us for our whole life, never attending to it. We have such a grief illiterate world and then when so many people get thrown into the face of grief we don't even know how to process it we don't have good models for it we don't know you know one of the things i think about people will often ask why why on earth do i want to sit with my pain why do i want to be in the horrible pain of grief and of course i think about first of all as i mentioned grief is the love you can't have one without the other. And why be in the pain? Because what we run from pursues us and what we face transforms us. 
So important to think about that concept. What we run from pursues us and what we face transforms us. And I think about how much the world has changed. I can remember early on in my career when I would talk about my mother dying, the shooting as a child, I would get criticism from many academics who would say, you know, you should really be talking about studies, tools, coping mechanisms. You, you know, it's, it's not very tasteful to sort of share your own story. Times have changed. What they didn't understand back then is we have to tell our stories. You know, and those of us that work with clients, we understand that there's a moment for self-disclosure and we understand there's moments that would not serve our clients to disclose what we've been to been through but it's such a primal need in life to share our stories you know the reality is grief must be witnessed we want our grief our loved one's life our loved one's death witnessed and i think about finding meaning. One of the things that I think is confusing for people when they hear about this concept of finding meaning, they'll often say, there's no meaning in a child's death. There's no meaning in a death from the pandemic. There's no meaning in these horrible things that happen in life. And yet, and yet, we can still find meaning in what we do afterwards. The meaning is not in the horrific event. The meaning is in us afterwards. In my online group, Tender Hearts, we have so many people who deal with all kinds of losses. And in different times, we have moderators come in who are volunteering their time to moderate different groups. And they come in and moderate groups and they're from the grief certificate program. One of the people who's moderating the groups on hope had nine family members murdered. There's no meaning in that horrible situation, but I find great meaning in that she shows up to help others. And she's learned that helping is healing. I think about one of the things I learned early on and I wrote about is something Diane Gray, who you will see later today, talk about. Diane called me probably, we talked many, many times, but I remember one conversation after my son died and Diane is not only you know, a specialist in these areas professionally, but she's also a reparent herself. She called me up one day and she said to me, you know, David, I get that you're drowning and you're going to be drowning for a while. And she said, at a certain point, you will touch bottom and you will have a decision to make. Do you stay there or do you swim back? And I wasn't really ready to 
know the depth of what that meant at that time, but Diane had so smartly planted a seed. And I realized how important that is, that seed of hope and that sense of making a decision that I am going to live again. And it's one that I think each person has to personally sit with in their grief. I know there were so many moments, there was one point in the first Christmas after my son's death, my younger son's death, I was sitting with my older son right before Christmas at my younger son's grave. And my older son said to me, he said, I'm never going to enjoy Christmas again. I'm never going to enjoy the holidays for the rest of my life. And I said to him, wow, I completely understand that feeling. I completely get it. I said, and I have maybe 20, 30, 40 more years here. I don't quite know. But I would really hate to think you and I are never going to have a good Christmas again. I would hate to miss that with you. And he went, oh, I didn't think about that. And I said, so at some point, maybe we'll find a way and make that decision to try to have a good Christmas again or good holidays again in honor of your brother and my son. You know, and for me, I think about meaning. And my son, David, loved my work. And it would be so easy for me uh, to just have been done after that. You know, I pictured I could be the guy on my block with the old dilapidated house and people go, who lives there? What, what happened to that guy? And they go, oh, he used to be a grief expert and then his own son died and now he never leaves his house. So easily, I could have been that guy. And I know probably for many of you, you've dealt with that feeling too or maybe are dealing with it. And I had to really sit with, I know my son, David, and he would not want his death to constrict my work. He would want it to expand it. So that's part of the meaning I've been trying to find. And I think about, you know, really thinking is meaning making. We don't have neutral thoughts. Every thought we have is about you know, love or fear. We attach stories to everything we do. We either have a meaningless or a meaningful existence. And so meaning making is something that's in our mind, in our heart. It's instead of having the post-traumatic stress, we work towards our healing to find the post-traumatic growth. And post-traumatic growth actually occurs more often than post-traumatic stress, but we don't think about it as often. What can that be like? What can making meaning be after a death? It can be that your identity has changed because they lived. It can be your identity and your relationship with other people has changed because of it. You can have a changed outlook on life, dare I say, you can even find growth and not just go through this experience, but grow through this experience.
And you know, I use the word healing. And so many times people go, I don't like that word healing, or what do you mean by healing? First of all, I think there's a myth that healing means forgetting. All of us today know we are never forgetting our loved ones, never forgetting them. What healing means to me is that horrible event that happened to them on one day and to us in one day does not get to define our love. It does not get to control our lives. That healing means eventually we can remember with more love than pain, but in our own time and in our own way. It meaning can look like finding gratitude for the time we had with them. And by the way, if you're early in grief, gratitude is a word that you can't imagine. It might be just instead of gratitude, a win. It could be that you took a shower this morning. That was the win for the day. Meaning can be finding a way to commemorate and honor our loved one. Maybe meaning is realizing the brevity of this life we have and the value in it. And it can be a springboard to some sort of shift. Meaning can be just that we're changed by we knew them this life. It can be feeling changed by how they died. And we want to change the world so no one else dies the way they can. There's so many different ways meaning can occur. And one of the things is meaning is found in the little moments. So many times we think about the people who started a foundation or they're doing the 5K run in their loved one's honor or they're doing these big things. That's great. But meaning is also found in little moments like these. Me being with these other speakers today and all of you who are joining us today, collectively joining in our grief and in our love, so meaningful. This is a meaningful moment. I remember talking to one woman whose child had died at two months, and she goes, there, there's no meaning in his horrible death. There's no meaning in Aaron dying. And we sat together for two hours, and she told me about what Aaron meant to her and how even though that two months was so brief, it meant so much to her. And she said to me, there can be no meaning. And I said, I, I get why you feel that way. But I just want you to know these two hours that we've sat together and you've told me about Aaron has been so meaningful to me. And I find great mom moments and meaning in knowing about his life and his death. You know, I think of two goals in grief work for me is to figure out who we are in this world without them. And the second one is to establish a new relationship with them. We knew how to love them when they were present, but how do we learn to love them in their absence? I think about also, you know, our grief is so shaped by a million things. I, uh, uh, last year, I, had uh, uh, two stints put in my heart. And uh, Ken Ross, who you're going to hear from later, he and I have talked about our heart problems. But um, it's fascinating to me. One friend of mine said when she heard 
I needed to have two stents in my heart and that I was having some issues. She goes, oh, that heart of yours, what a problem it is. And I remember going, oh my gosh, I don't see it that way. This heart has beaten and continued to beat through my mother dying, my father dying, through a shooting in my childhood, through so many horrific events, through, oh my gosh, AIDS, pandemics, epidemics, friends dying, loved ones dying, then my son dying. I said, this heart is amazing. And to think of how we all have these different perceptions and your assumptions about grief actually create your experience of grief. When I had those stents, there's drugs you get put on like atenolol and Atenolol is what's called a beta blocker. And if all of us got put on atenolol, it would slow our heart down like five beats a minute. That's what it would do. It doesn't care whether you think it'll work or not. It just slows your heart down. It doesn't care whether you believe in it or not. It just does its work. Grief is not like that. Your assumptions of grief, how were you raised? What did your parents believe in pushing it under the carpet? Did they believe it was weak? Did they believe uh, ladies don't get angry, men should stay strong, we shouldn't cry? What did your clergy, what did your religion teach you about grief? And this world is such a productive society telling us to get over grief. So our grief is so personal and it is affected by how we come together. I think of even coming together today. I love the idea of Open to Hope. What a beautiful concept and organization that Gloria and Heidi have put together. So many times when I work with people who are in the midst of pain, they'll say, all hope died with my loved one. And I'll often go, I can see how you would feel that way. I get that. And I just want to remind you, the death of your loved one, the physical death of them, I'm so sorry to say is permanent, but your loss of hope is temporary. And until you can find your hope again, all of us are gonna hold hope for you. I don't believe in giving death any more power than it already has. Death does have the power to take our loved one away physically but not our hope, not our love, not our memories. You know, we often think our work is about making the grief get smaller, but I think our grief doesn't get smaller. I think we have to get bigger, that we have to grow and continue to live and nurture our life. I know so many times before the pandemic, I would grab someone's hand, of course, with their permission, and I would feel their pulse and I would say, your heartbeat is continuing. You are still here. You still have a purpose. I don't know what anyone else's purpose is, but I'll go despite the fact that we feel all is lost and it is over, we continue. I'll go look tonight when you get home, your toenails are still continuing. We still continue. And you know, as long as we continue 
as long as we remember our loved ones, they can't fully die. They can't fully die. They stay on and they continue with us. And I think about, you know, my son David, when he was in kindergarten, he was voted the, um, uh, the most likely child to become a helper in his life. And he didn't get to do that. And I hope in many ways, by me sitting with people who have had a child die, who have had a spouse die, who have had a sibling die, who have had a parent die, and put their stories in finding meaning and his story that in some ways he continues to live. He continues to become that helper in death he never got to be in life. So I'm so honored to be here with you and to be with these other speakers. And thank you for anyone who wants to find me or know more about my work. You can always come to grief.com or drop me an email at david at grief.com. So thank you all for being here. I so appreciate your time. It's, it's the only precious thing we have that we can really give to one another. So thank you all. And thank you, Gloria and Heidi.